be seated. The blessing of being God's people, let's now, as we are gathered in his presence to worship him, let's now take his word and turn together to our passage, which will be our passage for this whole Advent season, that is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We'll turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So as we looked at last week, we are using this Advent season to look at Isaiah's prophecy of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to focus on the four titles that he divinely inspired and divinely given, and he gives to Jesus in, in this passage of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we began with that first title of Wonderful Counselor, and we looked at the term wonder, which means a supernatural wonder. In this case, a supernatural wonder that the one that's being pointed to is the one we know, God incarnate, born in the manger in Bethlehem. And biblically speaking, and, and always speaking, this is the wonder of wonders, isn't it? That we are so loved. God is so faithful to us, so dedicated to us, so devoted to us, that he gave his son to be born in that manger in Bethlehem. And not only was he given in that wonder of wonders, he is wisdom incarnate as well. That he is the wise counselor of our faith and life, that we depend upon the wisdom of this incarnate God. And that brings us this morning, the second title here applied to Jesus that Isaiah uses. And that is the title, the term, the description of mighty God. So as we prepare to look at that, let's pray for the Lord's blessings in our time in his word. Lord, we indeed come to you now and pray for your blessings. This is uh, something we do every week. We open our Bibles, we read it, and we hear a sermon. Lord, as familiar as it is, may it not be something we take for granted. May it not be something that we just overlook. May this be the climax of our week. And we have the privilege of hearing your word read hearing your word preached. And through your spirit, let's be able to hear it and understand it, to be convicted by it, and have it applied to exactly where it needs to be applied. Be it working this way, through me as your messenger, and through your people as your flock. And may you be glorified in all this. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We'll stand together now for the reading of God's word. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. You may not be all the way familiar with the term or the concept of redundancy, uh, but you are probably more familiar with it and how it works. Redundancy is a system design in which a component is duplicated, so if it fails, there will be a backup. So it's a, it's a safety, it's a safety component, and it's there to make sure that the machine, the function, the application, whatever is applied to, does what it's supposed to do. It stays on the right track. It continues in the right way. Even if there's a malfunction along the way, redundancy 
helps make sure this machine, this functions application does what it's supposed to do. Because if something goes wrong, and inevitably something will go wrong, redundancy is there to keep it going. So again, we may not be all the way familiar with it in terms or, or whatever, but, but we, we're familiar with it the way it works. It's in all sorts of machines and functions and applications. If it wasn't for redundancy, a lot of things we would expect to be working would end up not working. As we look at Isaiah's prophecy, especially the description of the child in the manger as being mighty God, it may sound redundant to us. It may sound redundant to us because this is a familiar story to us, doesn't it? If we've ever been in church around the Christmas season, this sounds familiar. That this child prophesied by Isaiah, this, this child to be born, this son to be given, is Jesus Christ. And we know that, that, that this Jesus is God. And that he is the second person in triune God. That there are three distinct persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are indeed the one true eternal God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. And it's this Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, who was born that first Christmas over 2,000 years ago. That's familiar to us, isn't it? That tends to be a redundant truth. We hear it every year. We hear it every year around this time. We, we read it. We, we know the Christmas story, right? We're familiar with it. But the question is, redundant as it is, as it may be, as familiar as it may be to us, what difference does it make? What difference has it made to you? Just because something is familiar doesn't mean it's been accepted. Just because something has been redundant doesn't mean it's been applied. So does this story make any difference to you? Because it's meant to. That's why Isaiah prophesies this. He is prophesying something that's going to happen in the future. He's offering this future truth and hope for Isaiah and God's people at that time that this is something that will change them. Because as we said last week, this prophecy is a prophecy of hope given in the midst of a very hopeless time. That God is, is offering hope by pointing to his child to be born, who as we know now so far will be the wonderful counselor and, and mighty God. And it's a prophecy, it's a hope that is meant to change them. Now think about what happens past this. Even though God's people had the assurance of this prophecy of Isaiah, the prophet sent by God, uh, equipped by God, uh, divinely inspired by God, even though they had the assurance of this prophecy, along with all the other prophecies beginning in Genesis 3.15, who is it that would then reject this Jesus? It was them. It was God's people. The very one these prophecies were given to, this prophecy of hope. For to us, a son is given, to, to us a child is born. This, this prophecy of hope that this one coming is the mighty God. Those same people who had those prophecies, who heard it, who read it, who studied it, were the very ones who would reject this child. Even though they had those redundancies there, they had that emphasis there, they chose to ignore it. That is why we need the same redundancy as well. We need that same reinforcement, that truth, 
Because there is so much that competes for our minds and hearts, especially when it comes to Christmas. I've learned that if you talk to any adult in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know what you're going to talk about? How busy you are. It's just a busy time of the year. And it seems like there's not enough time to do all that you need to do or even want to do. It can get overwhelming. It's also a very commercial time of the year. Because what does the world tell us? Well, the world tells us that the joy of the season is equated with materialism. And joy only comes by having more and more and more. And if you wake up on Christmas morning and there's not a new vehicle in your driveway with a red bow around it, then your spouse really doesn't love you and you should probably get a divorce, right? It's materialism. There's also a time of year where it isn't joyful for everyone. Families are tough. Families are dysfunctional. There's tension in the family. We've got to be around them at Christmas, don't we? There's grief. There's anxiety. There's depression. It's not always the most wonderful time of the year. For some people, this is one of the darkest times of the year. And all that is competing during this season. There's a lot that is working against the hope of this prophecy. And here's the good news. God knows that. The sovereign God knows how busy we are. Sovereign God knows how materialism is fighting with us. God knows how dark it can be for us. God knows the works of Satan against this time. So what's he do? He builds into the gospel of Christmas redundancy. Because over and over again in the Bible, we are taught, we are reminded, we are assured that this child born, this son given to us is God himself. From Genesis 3.15 onward throughout the rest of scripture, again and again, taught, reminded, and assured that this is Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus, the Savior of sinners. This is God in the flesh. 100% man, 100% God who was born that Christmas day. And Isaiah says, that is your hope. That is the hope of, God, of all God's people. That's the hope that is built into redundancy of the gospel of Christmas. That when we look to the manger, we have been told again and again and again, there is our eternal hope. And we're talking about biblical hope here. And I like how R.C. Sproul defines biblical hope. Biblical hope. Hope is not taking a deep breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right. Hope is assurance that God is going to do what he says he will do. And what does God say he will do here? To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And this is the mighty God. Our hope is meant to be secured in the who of Christmas. No matter how busy we are, no matter the materialism, no matter how dark it may be, the hope is we look to Christ, born at manger, to be our Savior. Isaiah gives this hope in the four titles. We look here at the second title that describes who Jesus is and his mission, that is Mighty God. 
So, so according to Isaiah, inspired and led by the Holy Spirit, where are God's people supposed to look to for hope? To the mighty God, to the one who will be born in Bethlehem, to Joseph of Mary. This one to be born is the same one who would be the mighty God, is the one who would be their mighty God. So God's people, their hope is to be secure to the one born that day, and that one is God himself. And this is, again, this is a redundant truth. We can go to the Gospel of Matthew. And Joseph has heard from Mary that she's pregnant. And he decides, to, and, 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 and being a good and righteous man, he's going to, to, to divorce her quietly, to separate from her quietly. Now remember, an angel comes to Joseph in his dreams. So Joseph, that child, this is God's child. He remember what the angel tells Joseph to name the child. Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's, you can't get any more plain and clear and definitive of the deity of Jesus Christ, can you? The one that you will name Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That redundant truth that this isn't some other child being born. This isn't some uh, you know, supernatural or, or spectacular child. This is God himself being born. We see that definitiveness there, definitiveness there with the gospel of, of Matthew. But we can see it here in the way Isaiah talks through this prophecy. Because the word he uses for God here in mighty God is the name El. And we think back to the Old Testament of all the times that is applied to the names of God. El Shaddai. Maybe you must probably remember the Michael Card song. He made this phrase popular uh, what, 20, 30, 40 years ago now, it seems like. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God. Elohim, the God of his people. El Elyon, the most high God. We go throughout the Old Testament and see that over and over again, that, that title, that term El, is applied to God. And that's the same title that's used here to describe the child who will be born. So Isaiah is saying in a very definitive way, in a very plain and clear way to the people there at that time, that the child to be born, that child is going to be God himself. The son given, that's going to be God himself. El is going to be God in the manger. That's their hope. Not only is he going to be the wonderful counselor, this is God himself. As God's people, I, I, I hope that no matter how many times we hear that or we think on that, it always stands as an extraordinary hope to us. That this baby we celebrate, this baby that, has, that we celebrate every year at Christmas, is God. All the, the, the hymns and the carols and the decorations, all this is to point to the truth that the baby born that night, born as, as everyone else is born, was God himself, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, in whom the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. And, and the, way, uh, the way the Hebrew works there, it, 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 with the first part of verse 6, the translation word for, for child, it comes first in the sense to put emphasis upon that fact. This is a child to be born, but this child is God himself. If we were able to go to that, to that scene in Bethlehem, when Mary gave birth, you know what it would look like to us? Every other birth in human history. Except, instead of being at Richland Northeast or 
whatever the hospitals in Columbia are called now, instead of being in a hospital room with doctors and nurses and, and, and machines, we would have been in a stable. But it was a birth as any other birth, except it was God himself who was born. And this ties in with what we talked about this past Wednesday night in our adult Bible study. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, the emphasis of the family tree is on Abraham and David. It's to show that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham is a Jew of Jews. You don't get much Jewish, much more Jewish than Jesus. But he also comes from David, showing that he has a rightful claim to the throne of David. That's why the government will sit upon his shoulder, because this one comes from the line of David. He's the king of kings, and this one is God himself. And this is the extraordinary hope that God's people now have. That this one born is God himself. As we think about this in the context of the people of Isaiah's time, we can only imagine what a comforting ray of sunshine that was for them. A dark time of discipline for their unrepentant and habitual sins. That God is going to comfort them. With the same hope it's true for us that God has come for us. Born that day, some 2,000 years ago, was God himself to come for his people. That is the hope that is offered here. But there's an implied hope as well in talking about this being God, and that's the work of the Trinity. Isaiah spoke this prophecy, but who gave the prophecy to Isaiah? It was God. So, so implied in this, and just follow with me, implied in this is that God is the reason for his birth. It's God who is giving the child to be born. It's God who has given the son to be, to be born. That God is, according to Isaiah, giving himself. God is prophesying through Isaiah, to my people, I am going to give myself. I am going to give myself to be born. Well, how can that be true? How can that be possible? How can God give himself to be born? It's because of the Trinity. Because our God is one in three, three in one. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here we get a glimpse, a glimpse of that wonderful Trinitarian doctrine. That God the Father is going to give his only begotten Son. The second person of the Trinity. And so here we're given this glimpse into what we call the, the, the covenant redemption, that wonderful eternal plan of salvation. That before there was time, before, before Genesis, you, hear the, you go back before Genesis, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decreed that the eternal Father would send the eternal Son to accomplish salvation for his people. And the eternal Son and the, or the eternal Father and the eternal Son would then send the eternal Spirit to minister this truth to the people of God. And we're given that glimpse here. That God says, I'm going to give myself. How? Because the Father is going to send the Son. And we can only understand that because the Father and the Son sent to us the Spirit to make this understood to us. That's in part the hope we have at Christmas. That the triumph God so loved you, and he so loved me, that this was his covenant. And this is the covenant being promised here 
through Isaiah's prophecy. I think that's important for us to understand in part because of that, but also in part because there are other religions out there who say that the Trinity is, is not present in Scripture. But all you have to do is say Isaiah 9, 6. What do you, what do, you do with that? What do you do with that, that beautiful refrain that we heard last Sunday from Handel's Messiah? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Here is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit coming to be the hope of his people to save us. And Isaiah describes this hope that the God coming is the mighty God. Again, that may seem to be a redundant truth to us, right? Of course God is mighty. We would say that. We don't think our God is a weakling, right? But how far does that truth stretch for us? How much of our faith in life does this truth touch and shape, conform, and, and comfort? Think of it this way. When's the last time you stopped and reflected on the mightiness of your God? Do you live as if your God is indeed the mighty God? I will confess to you, I can struggle with that. I can struggle with living my life as if God is mighty as he says he is. I can preach grace to you all day long, but I can also tell you I can act as if my salvation time depends on my good works. I can live as if my ministry is solely dependent on what little pathetic skills I may have. I find I can pray as if there's a limit to, God, to what God can and will do, and maybe I should shoulder that burden. I can do things thinking that I, am, uh, I alone am strong enough, smart enough, wise enough to do it. I will confess I can live like a Christian who has a weak God. And I can tell you living like that can lead to a lot of hopelessness. And that's the hope we have here. That even if we may feel that way, act that way, it doesn't change the objective truth that the, our God is the mighty God. And the people of Isaiah's time were living in, in full reflection of their own weakness. Try as they could, they would not stop sinning. And as they kept sinning, it would grow and grow and grow like a snowball running down a hill, picking up more, more snow and more speed. <clears throat> Excuse me, more speed. Until it becomes out of control, this big snowball out of control. How far does it go for them? We, we, go, through, we go through and look at them. They'll worship God. <clears throat> Things are going well. Then they're, they're tempted to worship, worship other gods. Maybe they, maybe they deal well with that temptation for a little bit, but they eventually end up worshiping other gods. How far does that go? At times where they even sacrifice their own children in worship. As a father, and I really hope to think as a human being, that, that, that boggles my mind. That anybody, much less the people of God, could reach a point where you look at their children and go, I'm going to sacrifice you in worship. I'm going to sacrifice you for this other God. Think about how far you have to fall to be able to do that. Think about how weak you have to be to do such a thing. But may I offer this? God's people still do it. We don't put our children on the altar and sacrifice them with a knife. But we can offer our children to the world. 
and allow the world to define and shape and guide them more than the church does. All in the hope that they'll be liked, they'll be successful, they will gain some sort of worldly acclaim. We may not put them on a table and put a knife to their throats, but when we hand them over to the world, it's just as good as sacrificing them, isn't it? And it all comes from weakness of faith and weakness of obedience. And that's where Isaiah people found themselves under discipline of God. They had tried to do their own thing. They tried to go their own strength. They tried to go uh, to do it all on their own. Where did it lead? It leads to here where they're being disciplined by God. And they are confronted with their weakness. And yet here comes God. In his grace, mercy, and love. And he gives them the hope of strength. Not that he's going to make them strong but he's coming to be strong for them they've reached a point they realize they can't do this and God says you can't but I can and I will it's interesting we go to the Christmas story in the New Testament and we go through uh, the, the, the characters involved and they, and they speak about the meaning of this event and they're witnessing and participating in such an example of Mary and her Magnificat. We find they, they often talk about the mighty acts of God on behalf of his people. For them, in the Christmas story, they, they think back to God's mighty work of deliverance from Egypt, of his mighty work of driving enemies from the land of promise, for his mighty work of keeping his people year after year. So those, those characters of that first Christmas, when, when, when they come to celebrate the mighty God, they do so by thinking about how the, how the mighty God has done all these mighty works. But it draws their attention to this. This mighty God is now doing the mightiest of works. The, 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 the deliverance from Egypt pales in comparison. The, the, the defeat of the enemies pales in comparison. They all pairs in comparison to this that the Father is sending His Son to save His people from their sins. This is the mightiest of acts. And the hope offered here for us is that this same God is offering us the same hope through faith in Jesus Christ. And the extent of this might is seen in the Hebrew word used here for mighty. It's the word used to describe a hero, a, a mighty man of valor, of warrior, we can think of it as, as being saying his, singing with, with Handel's Messiah. His name shall be called not just by God, but, but warrior God. We're talking, we're talking about warriors, a warrior on the, on the, on the level of, of, of a Navy SEAL, of a Ranger, of, of a Green Beret, of a seasoned, chiseled warrior who will always run to battle. As we're running away, they're running to it to save and to protect their people. So why does God become a man? Why is the baby born that manger? To be the mighty warrior. To be the warrior God to come and fight for you. Because he has seen how weak and pitiful and unable we are. So God comes to be your mighty warrior, to be your mighty God. That's why Paul can say with all confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? With God on our side, who can stand against God's people? What can stand against God's people? No one and nothing. 
And that is the hope offered to us here. That baby born is God, the mighty God, the warrior God. This is the second Sunday of Advent. We're halfway there, y'all. Two weeks and a day, and we're at Christmas. But the second Sunday of Advent, where's your hope? What is your surety based upon? That you're a good person? You come from a good family? You have good works? People respect you? Where to go to what is offered here? That Jesus Christ is our only hope because he is God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel. He was born to be your warrior. The one who would fight Satan on your behalf and he would be victorious. The one who defeats sin and death on your behalf so you have this eternal security and hope. The one who was born is the mighty warrior of salvation and life. And we cannot find any more hope than in that. And that's the hope offered here. That hope that comes through believing in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That hope that is redundant. Because what do we need to hear over and over again? You are so loved. You are so cherished. You are so important to God. that The Father sent the Son to be born in the manger, to be your wonderful counselor, and to be your warrior. That is the hope of Christmas. Let's pray together.